We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Episode 352 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Friday, July 8th, 2022, and welcome to Washington, D.C., Ivan Moroshnichenko. Say that name 10 times fast. Ivan Moroshnichenko. He is a winger. Our Capitals took him with the number 20 pick in the first round of the 2022 NHL Draft, which got going on Thursday night. Actually, this is an interesting pick by the Caps because Ivan Moroshnichenko was arguably the most talented player in the 2022 NHL Draft. He fell in the draft because he, this past March, was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. Just terrible. Uh, but he underwent treatments in Germany And the hope, obviously, is that he will live a long and happy and healthy life and be a productive player for the Caps. Uh, Ivan Moroznichenko is Russian. Uh, We have yet another Russian on the Caps. The Caps-Russian collusion continues. Hello and welcome uh, to a Friday installment of the Al Galdi podcast. There is no Russian collusion on this podcast. There is no Russian disinformation on this podcast. There is, though, lots of commanders talk. And coming up is part two of my conversation with Pro Football Focus senior data analyst Nick Ackridge, uh, the man behind many of the individual game grades for Washington players in the 2021 season. Nick is a big commanders fan. He is excellent at talking commanders. He joined me on Wednesday's show, episode 350, to talk commander's offense. And Nick will be with me on this show to talk commander's defense. Uh, We are going to cover a lot of ground with the commander's defense, including the situation at nickel corner. Is Benjamin St. Juice the guy? Should he be the guy? Should we like the juice as the commander's primary nickel corner this coming season? Uh, What is the deal at linebacker? Uh, Who or what is the biggest concern with the defense for this coming season and much more? A proper analytics-based discussion of the commander's defense with PFF senior data analyst Nick Ackridge is forthcoming. But before that, I'm going to talk commanders with you. 
And we're going to get into the words of Ron Rivera from Wednesday morning when we had the Terry McLaurin contract extension press conference. Ron said something during his introduction of Terry at the presser that you're going to want to hear. And Ron, after the presser, spoke with reporters in a side session of more than seven minutes. Video of that side session became available on Thursday. And I have the key and precious audio for you on this installment of the podcast. Always know that on this podcast, the Al Galdi podcast, you get commander's coverage, the likes of which you do not get anywhere else, including all of the key audio. And among the things that I want to get into with you next segment is, well, now that Terry McLaurin has been extended, who will slash should be next for the commanders? Also on the show, we'll give you my thoughts on the latest loss for the Nationals, a 5-3 loss at the Philadelphia Phillies on Thursday, a game in which we had some mystery with Juan Soto. I'll explain. And I have an Orioles segment for you late in the show. The O's on Thursday night won again, a fifth consecutive victory. 4-1 was the final over the Los Angeles Angels at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. If you are an O's fan, and I know that many of you are, feel excited. Feel very excited because Things are changing with this team. The rebuild is blossoming before our eyes. The O's over their last 46 games now are 26 and 20. For years, my mantra with the Orioles rebuild has been pain now, pleasure later. Pain now, pleasure later. Well, hopefully you've been hanging in there. Because the pleasure is a-coming. And in some ways, the pleasure has already started. Speaking of pleasure, it is always such a pleasure to talk Dan Snyder. How could it not be? Uh, We on Thursday got some news in the saga of Dan Snyder and Congress in the commander's workplace misconduct scandal. Uh, Dan, via a letter that his attorney sent to Representative Carolyn B. Maloney, chairwoman of the House Committee on Oversight and Reform, has offered to testify via video conference before the committee. But Dan's attorney says that Team Denny has yet to hear back from the committee. So in the letter, Dan's attorney, Karen Patton Seymour, told Maloney that Seymour has not heard from the committee since a June 30th phone call to discuss Dan's conflicts on other proposed dates for a deposition. The committee had offered for Dan to be interviewed remotely on July 6th or July 8th, according to the letter, and Seymour wrote that she offered July 28th or July 29th. And so the dance continues, and so the cha-cha-cha continues between Dan Snyder and Congress. Never forget Dan's strategy in all of this. Deny and delay and hope that it all goes away. Dan's strategy is a rhyming key, okay? Deny and delay and hope that it all goes away. And if the Republicans win back the House of Representatives in the midterm elections in November, then all of this almost certainly will go away. Also on Thursday, good news. The Pro Football Hall of Fame announced that its 12-person seniors committee has trimmed a list of eligible nominees to 25 semifinalists who have advanced to the next round of consideration. 
Among those 25 semifinalists, former Redskins offensive lineman Joe Jacoby. He, of course, should have been elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame years ago. His omission from the Pro Football Hall of Fame remains ridiculous, but maybe, just maybe, this wrong is about to be righted. We'll see. We have a ways to go here. Uh, The Seniors Committee will meet on August 16th to select up to three seniors for final consideration as members of the Pro Football Hall of Fame's Class of 2023. Also, the Pro Football Hall of Fame's 12-person coach-slash-contributor committee has reduced the list of nominated candidates to 29 semifinalists who have advanced to the next round of consideration. Among those semifinalists is former Redskins executive vice president-slash-head coach Mike Shanahan, Uh, although Mike's not a semifinalist necessarily for his tenure with the Skins, but the coach-slash-contributor committee members will meet on August 23rd to select one coach or contributor for final consideration for the Pro Football Hall of Fame's class of 2023. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Fiddlin' Mike in Abingdon, Virginia on Ron Rivera. Writes, Fiddlin' Mike, one of the things I've always loved about your show is the sound drops you sprinkle in from time to time. I think it's time for you to grab a drop from Ron Rivera commenting about his time in Carolina. This is not because I love hearing him reference his past. In fact, it's quite the opposite. I cringe when I hear Ron's Carolina references, like the one we heard in your recent segment on the running backs. To me, it feels like all the fans are driving around hoping to find a Chick-fil-A while some guy is telling us how things are done at Biscuit World. This is not Bill Parcells telling us how it was in New England. By all accounts, Ron is a great guy and a good coach, but until he stops with the Carolina references, I cannot be optimistic about him as the all-powerful Oz in Washington. Ditto on all the good things people say about your show. Well, thank you for that. Fiddling, Mike. Keep on fiddling, my friend. Uh, So this is going back more than a month now. Uh, But yeah, Ron Rivera at his post-OTA practice press conference on May 24th in talking about the commander's approach at running back said the following. Some of the things that we did in Carolina trying to emulate. <laughs> yeah, how about that? Some of the things we did in Carolina were trying to emulate. No kidding. Really? I hadn't noticed. Some of the things that we did in Carolina trying to emulate. Yeah, yeah, you don't say, huh? Some of the things you did in Carolina. You're trying to emulate. Boy, you could have fooled me. Uh, Email from Mike P. on the Commanders. Writes, Mike, when was the last time the Redskins slash Washington football team slash Commanders had a 4,000-yard passer, a 1,000-yard receiver, and a 1,000-yard rusher in one season? I'm asking because I think for the first time in a long time, the Commanders are capable of having a 4,000-1,000-1,000 season. That, to me, would be a huge improvement and give us a good chance to be competitive for a playoff spot. The talent is there, but it has to remain healthy, as cliche 
as that is. Uh, thank you for the email, Mike. Excellent question. Uh, the answer to your question is the 1999 season. In the 1999 regular season, Brad Johnson threw for 4,005 yards. Michael Westbrook and Albert Connell each had more than 1,100 receiving yards. Uh, Westbrook had 1,191 receiving yards. Connell had 1,132 receiving yards. And Stephen Davis rushed for 1,405 yards. 1999, 23 years ago, the last millennium, not even in this current millennium, the previous millennium, uh, that was the last time that the Redskins slash Washington football team slash commanders had a 4,000-yard passer, a 1,000-yard receiver, and a 1,000-yard rusher in the same season. That's only ever happened twice in franchise history. The other time was the 1986 season. Uh, in the 1986 regular season, Jay Schrader threw for 4,109 yards. Gary Clark and Art Monk each had more than 1,000 receiving yards. Clark had 1,265 receiving yards. Monk had 1,068 receiving yards. And George Rogers rushed for 1,000 203 yards. So just two times in the history of the franchise have we had a 4,000-yard passer, a 1,000-yard receiver, and a 1,000-yard rusher in the same season. Could time number three be this coming season? Uh, yeah, I do think that that's possible. What might be the biggest obstacle is the situation at running back. The idea behind the commander spending a third-round pick on Brian Robinson Jr. is for him to spell Antonio Gibson. So it's possible that neither Gibson nor Robinson will get enough carries to get to a thousand rushing yards. But of course, there are many ways that the commander's running back situation for this coming season could play out. So who knows? But I do think that Carson Wentz has a good shot at 4,000 passing yards for this coming regular season. And Terry McLaurin certainly has a good shot at a thousand receiving yards for this upcoming regular season. Know this about Carson. He, in the 2019 season, became the first quarterback in NFL history to have a 4,000 passing yard regular season without having a receiver who had at least 500 receiving yards. That's pretty absurd when you think about that. You get to 4,000 passing yards without a single receiver who had at least 500 receiving yards. Uh, Carson Wentz, in the 2019 regular season, threw for 4,000 39 yards, and the Philadelphia Eagles' leading receiver that season in terms of receiving yardage was Alshon Jeffrey at 490. Uh, that is, by the way, the only 4,000 passing yard regular season of Carson Wentz's career so far. Well, hopefully, Commander Carson uh, will take command this coming season with a 4,000 passing yard season. And if you need someone to take command in your quest, to buy a home in the Washington, D.C. area, contact the great Kellen Hunt. If you are wanting to buy a home in the Washington, D.C. area, you will do well by going with Kell, as in Kellen Hunt, as your real estate agent. Visit CloseItWithKell.com. That's CloseItWithKell, K-E-L-L.com. Book a call with Kellen Hunt to discuss your real estate needs and make sure that you tell Kell that Al Galdi sent you. The Washington, D.C. area real estate market is competitive. We, of course, have all kinds of things going on with our economy right now. What is the right way to approach buying a home in the D.C. area? What are the best strategies? How do you make sure that your offer for the home that you want is the offer that wins? Well, this is where Kellen Hunt comes in. Kellen Hunt has a mastery 
of the Washington, D.C. area real estate market, but he's not just some know-it-all. He is here for you, to listen to you, to hear what you want, and then determine the best way of going about getting you what you want, no matter your age or situation in life. His website says it all. Close it with Kel.com. Kellen Hunt is a closer. Just as our commanders just closed a contract extension with Terry McLaurin, Kellen Hunt will close you buying the home that you want, and Kellen Hunt is willing to put a portion of his commission back in your pocket. Yeah, you, the buyer, get a piece of the action. Kellen Hunt knows what buyers like you are facing, and he wants to help. So visit CloseItWithKell.com. That's CloseItWithKell, K-E-L-L.com. Book a call with Kellen Hunt to discuss your real estate needs, and make sure that you tell Kell that Al Galdi sent you. You have nothing to lose. Visit CloseItWithKell.com. Book your introductory call with Kellen Hunt at CloseItWithKell.com. If you are trying to buy a home in the Washington, D.C. area, you will do well by going with Kell. Visit CloseItWithKell.com and tell Kell that Al Galdi sent you. So we on Thursday's show, episode 351, uh, talked about the contract extension press conference of Commander's receiver Terry McLaurin on Wednesday morning at the team's headquarters in Ashburn, Virginia. And I mentioned that both Terry and Commander's head coach Ron Rivera spoke at the press conference. Uh, they did. Uh, Ron just didn't say much during the actual presser. He did, though, say something that I wanted to highlight and that he did speak with reporters off to the side after the press conference. The video of that post-press conference side session became available on Thursday, and so I'd like to get into some of that with you here in this segment. First, though, what Ron said at the actual press conference. So Rod Rivera spoke first at the presser. Uh, He did not speak for long. He introduced Terry McLaurin, and Ron, in his introductory remarks, said the following. It's kind of nice to be back and take care of this business. You know, it's a it's one of those things that as a uh, as a as a football coach to to be able to have players that fit what you're trying to do and understand and really kind of see the vision that you have and and with Terry that's somebody that we believe we have and because of that you know getting him done we felt was a, was one of the things that we felt had to be a priority for us and there's still a couple other guys that, that we want to get taken care of because we really do believe in who they are and you know they uh, in fact in some situations some cases you know they're going to be playing into their their last last year but it doesn't mean they're not they're not wanted but um, you know with Terry I think one of the things that we were able to do was take care of one of our captains, take care of one of the guys that means an awful lot for one side of the football uh, and for the team as a whole. So with that, guys, I want to you know, congratulate and thank Terry uh, McLaurin for being part of what we're trying to do. So know what Ron Rivera said in the middle of that cut, quote, there's still a couple other guys that we want to get taken care of because we really do believe in who they are. In fact, in some situations, in some cases, they're going to be playing into their last year, but it doesn't mean that they're not wanted. End quote. Uh, That right there to me sounds like Ron is talking about, if not talking directly to, Deron Payne, right? Deron is entering a contract season. Indications have been that the commanders haven't even made a contract extension offer to Duran this offseason, let alone negotiated with him on a contract extension. But Ron still has talked about Duran as someone who the commanders value. Now, that may well be posturing on Ron's part, but what he said right there to me sounded a lot like a message 
to Deron Payne and perhaps to Cole Holcomb too, as Cole is entering a contract season. Here are the most significant commanders players for whom the 2022 season is a contract season. On defense, interior defensive lineman Deron Payne, linebackers Cole Holcomb and David Mayo, safety Jeremy Reeves, corners Danny Johnson, Corn Elder and Troy Apke, and edge defender F.A. Obata. And then on offense, quarterback Taylor Heineke, receiver Cam Sims, guards Trey Turner and Wes Schweitzer, and center Tyler Larson. Uh, There are plenty of other commanders players for whom the 2022 season is a contract season, but those are the players who stand out the most. Additionally, the 2022 season is, in a lot of ways, a contract season for quarterback Carson Wentz. Uh, The commanders essentially have a team option on Carson for the 2023 season, as the commanders can cut Carson after this season and not owe him any more money, even though he technically has three seasons left on his contract, but the guaranteed money in the contract is done with after this season. And we also should mention edge defender Montez Sweat. Uh, The 2022 season is not a contract season for him. He is under contract through the 2023 season by the commanders in April, having exercised the fifth-year option in his rookie contract. But if Montez has a big 2022 season, there will be a lot of talk about the commanders potentially signing him to a big-money contract extension in the 2023 offseason. So when Ron talks about, quote, there's still a couple other guys that we want to get taken care of, end quote, these are the players who are probably running through his mind. My bet would be on Cole Holcomb being the next commander's player of significance to get a contract extension. I could see that happening uh, this summer. Uh, Ron and defensive coordinator Jack Del Rio really like Cole. Uh, the commanders are spending very little money at linebackers, so this isn't like, say, the Deron Payne situation, which includes the team already paying big money to another interior defensive lineman in Jonathan Allen. And Cole Holcomb doesn't figure to cost a ton. He is a good linebacker. He is not a great linebacker. You're not talking about elite level money here for Cole Holcomb. And his value would seem to be greatest to the commanders as opposed to with another team. And so it would seem to be in the best interests of both sides to get a deal done. If not this summer, then maybe during the 2022 season or shortly after the end of the 2022 season, before free agency starts. So Ron Rivera on Wednesday morning during his post-press conference side session with reporters was asked about having looked like a proud papa while Terry McLaurin spoke at his press conference. And Ron did look like a proud papa. He looked like a big proud papa. As the late great Notorious B.I.G. said many years ago, I love it when you call me big papa. Uh, But yeah, Ron looked happy. Uh, Here he was on Why. Well, you know, when, when, when you're able to keep, as, as Terry said, about keeping leadership, guys, that really helps set the tone and tempo for you. That's important. Um, and, you know, last year we were able to do that, and we got it done with, with, with John and, and, and Logan. And now with Terry, you know, as we, you know, try to retain our own pieces. And as I said up there, we're not done because, you know, there's some guys that, you know, because of the way we have to try and plan this out and map this out, you know, we're not able to do now, but we're hoping to do soon uh, in the future at some point or hopefully early next year. So we'll see. I mean, we're not done yet. Um, like I said, I've gotten tremendous amount of support from the ownership. You know, both, both, both Tanya and Dan have been really supportive about the things that we've talked about doing. Um, you know, we've talked about a three-year plan and, and how everybody's fitting and how we have to move pieces around to make it. That's important. And so, um, you know, getting Terry done was, was, was really big. It really was. 
All right, so notable to hear Ron Rivera talk about a three-year plan. Wouldn't you love to know what exactly constitutes that three-year plan? And as was the case during the actual press conference, Ron in that cut talked about there being players who he wants to take care of at some point soon. Uh, Maybe not now, but at some point soon. It's funny, uh, Ron again seemed to suggest that the commanders are somewhat handcuffed right now by their salary cap situation. That remains a false narrative. I don't know why the commanders keep talking about this. The commanders have plenty of cap space. The commanders, as we speak for OverTheCap.com, have $13.446 million in effective salary cap space. Uh, Now, Ron Rivera on Wednesday morning was asked where exactly we are in this three-year plan. After all, this coming season will be Ron's third season as Washington head coach. So are we in year one, two, or three of the three-year plan? Here was Ron's answer. Every year's year's a three-year plan. And that's how we have to look at it. You know, one thing that Terry and I did talk about was the quarterback situation. For who asked the question, it was a great question because, you know, you hope you can do this on a... a, a, rookie contract for a quarterback yeah. and you can't so you know we have to adjust it and that was one of the things that we had to work through is how did we adjust it how did it impact our plan going forward and every time you do something you have to readjust the plan and again as I said when you do that you have to sit down with, with, with ownership you have to sit down with, with you know our CFO and you know myself Martin Rob Marty we sit down and we go through these things and, and it does take a little bit of a process but as, you know, and hopefully this sends the right kind of message to our players, you know, it's, it's about trying to retain as many of you guys as we can going forward. Yeah, what Ron Rivera said right there is not unlike what Nationals president of baseball operations and general manager Mike Rizzo has said for years. Uh, Mike for years has said that he every year has a one-year plan, a three-year plan, and a five-year plan. When you preside over operations, whether they are baseball operations in Mike Rizzo's case or football operations in Ron Rivera's case, you, of course, need to have a plan. Uh, You need to have a long-term plan, and you, of course, need to be able uh, to modify your plans. Uh, Something else that was notable from Ron Rivera's post-press conference side session with reporters on Wednesday morning, he called the signing of Terry McLaurin to a contract extension an organizational signing. Take a listen. Terry's an organizational signing. You know, it, it impacts not just the football side, but the business side of who we are. And, and, and it, tells, it tells the people that, that become our, our, our partners that, you know, we want to retain young men of this stature. We want young men of, of this magnitude out there representing our organization, representing our community, thus representing your brand. That's what we're trying to do. And, 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 and he is one of those guys that most certainly is in your thinking. Interesting to hear Rod Rivera admit that signing Terry McLaurin to a contract extension wasn't just about football, but also was about business, also was important to getting sponsors for the commanders. It's not often that you'll hear someone in football operations admit to something like that, but of course, it's not often uh, (laughs) that you have an NFL team in the predicament that our commanders are in with all of the -the off-the-field stuff with the team and with business operations that have had major problems. Don't forget, we in March learned that Anheuser-Busch had decided to no longer sponsor the commanders. 
Commander's insider J.P. Finley of NBC Sports Washington in a piece that came out on March 23rd reported that the commander's deal with Anheuser-Busch, quote, was worth at least $4 million annually per NFL and team sources and ranked among the commander's four largest sponsorships. The only deals worth equal or more are with Pepsi, FedEx, and Bank of America, end quote. Uh, Also, we in February learned that Medliminal was no longer a sponsor of the Commanders. Uh, That deal per JP was a six-figure deal for the Commanders. Uh, So yeah, the team needs help with sponsors. To say nothing of needing help with selling tickets to games at maybe the single most despised venue in all of major professional sports, the oh-so-lovely FedEx field. But Washington, over the last 18 months, has signed a number of significant players to contract extensions. I mean, you think about it, right? Center Chase Rulier, interior defensive lineman Jonathan Allen, tight end Logan Thomas, left tackle Charles Leno Jr., and now receiver Terry McLaurin. And it certainly seems like more players could be extended by the Commanders over the next 12 months or so. Up next, much more on the Commanders. I'll talk Commanders defense with Pro Football Focus senior data analyst Nick Ackridge. Uh, He is a big Commanders fan and will hit on a number of items, including whether the team's pass defense is poised for a bounce-back season. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Well, I thank you for listening to this podcast. Uh, I thank you for rating and reviewing the podcast. If you have never rated the podcast, please consider doing that. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, you can give the podcast a five-star rating. And if you have never written a review of the podcast, please consider doing that. You can write a review of the podcast if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. Uh, The review does not have to be long. can be just a sentence or two saying, that you like the podcast, but the ratings and the reviews do help to make the podcast successful, and I appreciate you doing them. So we on Wednesday show, episode 350, had part one of our conversation talking commanders with pro football focus senior data analyst Nick Ackridge as we get closer to the start of commanders training camp. It's coming up, uh, starts on July 27th. When you hear about Washington players and their pro football focus grades, the PFF grades, uh, that often has been the work of Nick Ackridge. He graded Washington for a good chunk of its games last season. Uh, Nick also happens to be a big Commanders fan. 
Uh, part one of our conversation was on the commander's offense. Nick had some really good stuff on Terry McLaurin and Carson Wentz and Scott Turner and Antonio Gibson. So if you missed part one, I certainly would encourage you to check that out. Again, that is in episode 350. Uh, right now, it is time for part two of our chat with Nick as we will talk commander's defense. Uh, you can follow Nick on Twitter at PFF underscore Nick Ackridge, and his last name is spelled A-K-R-I-D-G-E. Nick, thanks a lot for coming back on the podcast for this uh, part two. Uh, let's talk commander's defense, and let's start with what was the biggest problem for Washington's defense last season? It's interesting looking back at Washington's 2021 defense because it's not as simple as the defense was bad. The run defense actually was quite good. It was the pass defense that was bad. Now, the team's 2022 schedule appears to be a lot easier than the team's 2021 schedule, certainly in terms of opposing quarterbacks. So do you think that it is safe to say that the commander's pass defense is going to be much better this coming season as compared to the team's pass defense last season? Yeah, I think so. And I think it's mostly it's yes, the schedule will definitely help. But I think it's also you know, just get another year of that same group kind of working together. And you saw it at the beginning of the season and then how it changed in the end of the season where they were just not on the same page. Like you could see it. You could see so many busted assignments, so many guys doing something that they weren't expected to do, trying to cover for somebody else. And now when you kind of at the end of the season, you saw that they kind of trusted each other more. They were playing within their assignments. And that's all you can ask from them. Um, sometimes the defense is only as good as the offense it's playing. But if you are trying to go out of your way, bust your assignments, trying to make spectacular plays, it's just not going to work. And they just kind of decided to stick with assignment football, do what they're supposed to do, um, and it just turned out better. So I, I think it'll definitely be much better than it was last year. And it definitely helps to get Chase Young back for a full season, hopefully, um, to kind of put some more pressure on the quarterback and not have those guys covered for as long as they need to. Which commander's defensive duo to you is more important to commander's defensive success in the 2022 season? Uh, Chase Young and Montez Sweat or William Jackson III and Kendall Fuller? I think it's the corners. I've always been a guy that kind of subscribes to the thought that coverage is a little more important than pass rush. I think they, they go hand in hand and you can't have one without the other. Um, but when the NFL's kind of moved to this quick passing game where everything's out quickly in under two seconds, you need guys that can, you know, stop that quickly. And even the best pass rushers aren't going to consistently win in under two seconds. It's just not possible. Um, so I think you need those corners to step up on the outside and, and just do their job. I, William Jackson is a very good corner. He just was kind of thrown into a situation that he wasn't really used to played a lot of man coverage, um, in Cincy. They tried doing that a little bit, but the other guys weren't as good as, at it. And they tried switching back to zone, and it was just a little bit of a mismatch there. But I think with another year under the, in the system, um, I think he'll be much better. But I do, I do think that the corners are, are going to be more important, mostly because I, I think that Sweat and Young, I, I think you know what you're going to get. Um, and that's just, at least with Montez Sweat, just a very consistent pass rusher. Um, Chase Young, we're all hoping he can get back to that rookie season. But when he is at his best and fully healthy, I think he's a very dominant pass rusher. So I think you know what you're getting there. Um, so I think it's just more important that those corners can kind of stay solid on the outside. One of the more notable and I think surprising commander's defensive developments this offseason has been this rise of Benjamin St. Juice to be the top candidate to be the team's number one nickel corner. 
this coming season. He obviously would be a bigger nickel corner. The team lists him as being six foot three and 200 pounds. Do you buy that St. Juice could be the commander's answer at nickel corner? I do. I think it's a really interesting fit because his body is just so he's built like a basketball player. Like the wingspan he has is just so rare for a corner. Um, and I think he played pretty well at the outside last year when, when he first started, um, slots just 10 times tougher because you have to deal with two way goes and they can release the out. They can release the inside. It's just so much tougher, but I think his length gives him an advantage in that he doesn't need to be perfect in every rep. And he showed that last year, like even if he's beat a little bit, his, his arm length can make up for it and, you know, cause some disruption there. Um, even if he isn't in perfect coverage. So I think he's a very interesting candidate. I'd love to see it play out. I think if you can get him to just be a solid, decent nickel corner, I think you can really expect this defense to take off. As you know, not every slot receiver in the NFL is 5'10 or shorter anymore. Is the league trending toward bigger nickel corners? Yeah, I mean, the nickel cornerback position is over the past like five years or so, it's become just such a huge important position because teams are pretty much basing out of three wide receiver sets. And like you said, it's not just your typical five foot ten quick shifty wide receiver in the slot anymore. You have power slot guys, big guys that are playing in the slot. You have tight ends playing in the slot and you need somebody that can sit there and be quick enough to deal with those shifty receivers, but also strong enough to deal with those bigger tight end power slot kind of guys. So it's a very, very tough position. I think it's one of the toughest on the defense. Um, and I think Cam Curl has done a decent job. He's just not as quick to cover those shifty guys. But when you get him against a tight end, he's he's very solid there. Um, so if if St. Juice can kind of keep that quickness up, but also be keep that length, um, it, it'll it'll be a good good match there. We're talking Commanders defense with Pro Football Focus senior data analyst Nick Ackridge, who is a big Commanders fan. With Kendall Fuller, it certainly felt like his play last season got better once he started playing more on the outside as opposed to on the inside. That said, his Pro Football Focus numbers as a slot corner for last season really aren't that bad. Uh, In your opinion, is Fuller still a viable option as a nickel corner, or should he be kept to playing on the outside for the most part? I do like him more on the outside. I like when he's able to kind of play off and read and react. Um, he's just not as quick as he used to be. So when you're kind of dealing with trying to put him in press man and slot, it just isn't working as well. Um, when you can kind of let him play off on the outside in zone coverage and let him read the quarterback and react to certain route combinations, I think he's much better there. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's just tough. The older you get as a corner, the less, the harder it is for you to keep up with the inside slot guys. So, I think I do think he's better outside. We went into this offseason with so much talk about linebacker, right? Washington needed to upgrade at linebacker. Washington needed to acquire a Mike linebacker. Well, Washington this offseason has done next to nothing at linebacker and now is saying that Cole Holcomb uh, can be the Mike linebacker. Given that Ron Rivera has said that the plan is to, again, go with a lot of Buffalo nickel looks, uh, thus usually only having at most two linebackers on the field, has all of this linebacker talk been overrated, or has the team made a mistake in not doing more at the linebacker position, if for no other reason than depth? I've gone back and forth on this a lot, because like I said, the offense is basing out of three wide receiver sets, basically. So you're not asking for your typical three linebackers anymore. Teams on defense are basing out of nickel. 
So you only have two linebackers on the field. And I think last year dealt with injuries. And I think the depth is a problem. I don't think they did enough to really solidify the depth. So if somebody does go down, like if Cole Holcomb goes down, who's next? Like, I I don't know who you're going to ask to step up. Um, I do like Holcomb. I think he's a very good linebacker and he's never going to be the the top guy, the top tier of linebackers, but I think he's a very solid linebacker. Um, And that position is kind of, it's not similar to the running back and where we've completely um, disvalued it, but I think it is become less and less important because if you can get a, a solid defensive line that can, like a Duran Payne, who can take up two gaps and kind of leave linebackers free and open to make plays, um, I think it makes their job a lot easier. Um, so I, I think it's it's massive for Jamin Davis to take a step up because if you can have him and Cole Holcomb play consistently, I think you're good there. But I do think they they needed to add more depth, like you said. I just don't I, I just don't see what happens if they go down with injuries and. With, we know that this team can struggle with injuries a lot sometimes. So if they go down, I, I think it could be a massive, massive problem. Yeah, to me, depth at corner is a major concern. So looking at the commander's defense as a whole, who or what is your biggest concern for this coming season? Yeah, I think it's depth. I think you hit it right there. Because again, if if somebody goes down like that, I just don't know who you're counting on. Um, I think as a starting group, it's a pretty solid group. Obviously the defensive line has some really good depth. I don't think that's a problem there, but I think everywhere else, like you said, corner safety linebacker, you're counting on guys who are either journeymen and practice squad players or rookies. Um, and if you're expecting that, I, I just don't see how you can, you know, see this defense as a top 10 defense. If injuries happen and they will happen, it's, it's football. You're going to get injuries. You're never going to get a full season with your full starters. So, um, I think depth is a problem and just kind of hoping it, it doesn't hurt them. One more for you. Uh, as I've said, you are a fan of the commanders. As we all know, it's not easy to separate the on the field stuff from the off the field stuff with our team. That said, uh, in just looking at the on the field stuff, as we enter season number three of Ron Rivera as head coach, and he has made such a big deal about this coming season needing to be a step-forward season for the team. Uh, how are you feeling about Commander's football operations right now? I feel like it's in a good spot. I think that that first year really set expectations way too high. I think that first year when you kind of sneak into the playoffs and win the division, it was an incredible year. I don't really know how they did it, but I it set the expectations so high last year when you're expecting on a Ryan Fitzpatrick to come in and lead you back to the playoffs on after when you're playing a um, division leading schedule, basically. So I think it's in a good spot. Um, if you would have told me when he signed here that year three, we're going into it and we're coming off of, you know, you, you've won the division one time and you're in a position where you're kind of seen as a team that is pushing for playoffs. I think that's a good spot to be in because again, when he came in, this team was picking second overall. Um, uh, I, I think I haven't agreed with everything um, when it comes to, you know, player recruitment and stuff like that and, and free agency and the draft and stuff. But I think he's in a good spot. This, like you said, this season is is huge for him because you go in and you, you say you have your quarterback. So now you need to show it. And I think it's a big year for them. Yeah, no doubt. Nick Ackridge, Pro Football Focus Senior Data Analyst, big Commanders fan, knows his stuff. Uh, Nick, thanks a lot for your time and all the best to you. Yeah, appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me.
Well, it was nice to see the Nationals actually win a game on Wednesday night, but we, of course, could not have a second straight Nats win. Uh, now, could we? Uh, the Nats on Thursday lost at the Philadelphia Phillies 5-3. Uh, the Nats lost two of the three games in the series. Tuesday night, that hideous 11-0 loss. Wednesday night, a 3-2 win, but then Thursday, this 5-3 loss. The Nats in the 2022 regular season now are 30-55, and 55, 25 games below 500. That is the second worst record in the National League. Included in the 30-55 and 55 is the Nats being an atrocious 7-30 and 30 against the National League East, and the Nats have the worst run differential in the majors at minus 130. The Nats on Thursday did score a run in each of the first two innings of the game, but then did very little offensively the rest of the game. Uh, the Nats finished the game with eight hits and two walks, but five of the Nats' eight hits and one of the Nats' two walks happened over the first two innings. The Nats, over the final seven innings of the game, totaled a mere one run on a mere three hits and a mere one walk. Uh, how about what happened in the top of the seventh, the Phillies flame-throwing reliever, Jose Alvarado, struck out all three of the Nats' big boppers, or supposed big boppers. Uh, the Nats' numbers, two through four batters, Juan Soto, Josh Bell, and Nelson Cruz. Uh, Alvarado threw multiple 100-plus mile-per-hour pitches, and he made Soto, Bell, and Cruz look foolish. And look, Alvarado is a tough pitcher to face. There's no question about that, but... Uh, this was tough to watch. You know, your three big horses coming up small like that in that top of the seventh. Uh, Juan Soto had an interesting game on Thursday. He has an ad starting right fielder and number two batter went two for five with an RBI single and another single, but he also struck out twice and he had a bad defensive blunder with which there is some mystery. Uh, so first, the two hits. Uh, these were two impressive hits. Soto in the Nats one run first, a one out opposite field single to left center field on an 0-2 pitch. Soto in the Nats one run second, a two out first pitch RBI single to right center field for a 2-0 Nats lead. But Soto in the Phillies three run third, a major defensive miscue. He on would ended up being a two out RBI triple by D.D. Gregorius, whiffed on a high fly ball to the warning track right in front of the right field wall. Now, Nats manager Davey Martinez during his postgame session with reporters said that Soto's glove got caught in the chain link fence and that that's why Soto failed on that play. But Soto during his postgame session with reporters said that no such thing happened and that he simply misjudged the ball. So I don't know if uh, Davey Martinez concocted some fake news to try to make Juan Soto look better. I don't know if there was some sort of a miscommunication and Davey legitimately thought that Juan Soto's glove got caught in the chain link fence. Whatever the case, uh, the ball went off the wall and the result was a two-out RBI triple by D.D. Gregorius in a three-run Phillies third. Here was Davey Martinez during his postgame session with reporters on Thursday evening on what happened with Juan Soto on this play. Yeah, you know, his glove actually got caught on the chain link fence as he went to go catch the ball. Um, but, you know, the you know the thing is, we, you know, we, we could have actually scored a few more runs early off. Um, it would, we would have been in great shape. You know, we, we just couldn't capitalize. David, is there anything he could do differently on that play or just, just a freak thing with his glove? No, I mean, he, he got back to the wall, was waiting for the ball, and uh, he was underneath it when he stuck his glove up. Um, his the, the fingers got caught as he went up. And, um, and he said he, he couldn't react to get the, the glove to the ball. 
Yeah, well, whatever happened uh, on the D.D. Gregorius RBI Triple on Thursday, uh, Juan Soto, in addition to having the weird offensive season that he's having, is not having a good defensive season. Uh, Soto entered Thursday with minus three defensive runs saved in right field in the 2022 regular season. It was nice to see Josh Bell have some good plate appearances on Thursday. He opened the first two games of the series when it combined 0 for 7 with a walk, but Bell on Thursday has an at starting first baseman and number three batter, 1 for 4 with a double and a walk. Uh, Bell in the Nats, one run first through a one out four pitch walk. Bell in the top of the second had a two out double to deep left field. But Nelson Cruz on Thursday continued to struggle. Uh, Now, Cruz was back to playing. That was good. Uh, Cruz on Thursday returned from a two-game absence caused by a stomach illness. But Cruz as an at-starting DH and number four batter, 0 for 3 with a hit-by-pitch and three strikeouts and he left two men on base. Uh, he and the Nats one run first, drew a one-out hit by pitch. But Nelson Cruz now, over his last eight games, is four for 31 with four singles and two walks. Four for 31 with four singles and two walks. He's back to doing way too little as a batter. He got off to a horrendous start this season. He then was better for a while, but now he's back to struggling. And the thing with Nelson Cruz is him struggling as a batter is a particularly big deal because him batting is his only job. Uh, He's the Nats starting DH. If he's not hitting well, uh, then you have to say, well, what's the point here exactly? And I'm not even mentioning the other part of all of this, which is that the whole idea behind having Nelson Cruz on a rebuilding team as the Nats are is to try to flip Cruz for a prospect or prospects by the time we have the MLB trade deadline on August 2nd. And Nelson Cruz continuing to struggle is not doing any favors to his trade value. Nelson Cruz in the 2022 regular season now has the following slash line, batting average of 239 on base percentage of 321, slugging percentage of 365. What has happened to the Nelson Cruz power? Uh, His OPS for the season is a mere 686. This from a guy who over the three previous regular seasons, 2019 through 2021, had a combined OPS of 936. From 936 over the last three seasons to 686 this season in, yes, what is Nelson Cruz's age 41 season. So it may just be that he is getting old right before our eyes here uh, as an act. Uh, now, I mentioned Nelson Cruz having missed two straight games due to a stomach illness. It looks like Luis Garcia now may have that illness. Uh, Garcia on Thursday as an ad starting shortstop and number seven batter, one for three with a double. Uh, he did have a strikeout and did leave three men on base, but the double was impressive. Garcia in the top of the third, a two-out opposite field double off the left field warning track, despite having been down at the count at one point, one, two. However, Garcia left the game after six innings due to a stomach illness, so we'll have to monitor his status. Uh, the guy who replaced him, though, ended up having a big hit, uh, the ultra-versatile A-Ray Adrianza. Uh, not exactly known for his bat. But he came off the bench, and he and the Nats one run eighth had a one-out RBI double down the third baseline to cut the Nats' deficit to 5-3. The Nats' other run-scoring hit came from Michael Franco. He is a Nats' starting third baseman, and number six batter went one for three with an RBI single and a hit by pitch. He and the Nats one run first had a two-out bases loaded RBI single to left field for a one nothing Nats lead. And Franco in the Nats one run eighth drew a one-out 
hit by pitch. But otherwise, not a lot happening for the Nats offensively on Thursday. They saw Hernandez as the Nats starting second baseman and number one batter, one for five with a double. Uh, he did strike out twice, but Hernandez in the Nats one run second, a two out double into left field foul territory, despite having been down to the count of 1.12. But that was Cesar Hernandez's first hit of the series. He over the first two games of the series went 0 for 8 with a strikeout. Uh, Victor Robles continues to struggle. Robles on Thursday as an ad starting center fielder and number nine batter. One for four with a single. He in the top of the six had a two out opposite field single through the right side of the infield to beat the shift. So, okay, that was a nice plate appearance. But we've been seeing a lot of Robles lately. He has been starting every game lately, in part because Juan Soto uh, was out with his calf issue. But Robles continues to just not be good offensively. We are very much in the midst of a third consecutive really bad offensive season for Victor Robles. Victor Robles in the 2022 regular season now has an OPS of just 600. And how about this? His on-base percentage, which isn't high to begin with, is higher than his slugging percentage, if you can believe that. That almost never happens. That a guy's on-base percentage is higher than his slugging percentage, and yet Victor Robles in the 2022 regular season has an on-base percentage of 304 and a slugging percentage of 296, a 296 slugging percentage is microscopic. The power of Victor Robles has completely evaporated over these last three seasons. Uh, It has been sad to see because this guy actually hit for some power in the Nats 2019 World Series championship season. Robles in the 2019 regular season hit 17 home runs. Uh, The Nats starting pitcher on Thursday was Joanna Doan. Uh, He was not good again at the major league level. Uh, The Nats on Thursday afternoon recalled the Doan from AAA Rochester for what was presumably a spot start on Thursday. Uh, Jackson Tatro now is on the 15-day injured list with this stress fracture of his right scapula. And so the Nats have an open spot in their rotation. Joanna Doan got the Jackson Tatro turn in the rotation, at least on Thursday. And Doan on Thursday was bad once again at the major league level this season. He allowed four runs in four innings. Uh, He gave up six hits, a triple, three doubles, and two singles. He issued three walks and a wild pitch. Uh, Control problems have plagued Yoan Adon. Control problems have plagued Yoan Adon again uh, in this game. He did record five strikeouts. You know, there is something to Yoan Adon. It's not like he doesn't have anything going for him, but he over his four innings through 96 pitches. And Here's the bottom line. Joanna Doan now in the 2022 regular season over 14 major league starts has an ERA of 7.10 and a walks per nine innings of 5.43. He's just not major league ready, point blank period. Doan began the regular season in the Nats rotation, but he struggled. 12 starts, ERA a 6.95, a whip of 176. The Nats on June 8th optioned Doan to AAA Rochester. That's where he should be pitching. But the Nats now, twice since demoting him to Rochester on June 8th, have brought him back up to the major league level to make a spot start. Uh, the Nats on June 17th appointed Doan as their 27th man for a doubleheader, and Doan in a 5-3 loss to the Phillies at Nationals Park on June 17th in Game 1 of the doubleheader, allowed four runs in five innings. And then Adon, in a 5-3 loss at the Phillies on Thursday, allowed four runs in four innings. Keep the guy at AAA. Let him learn and develop. Uh, this was Davey Martinez during his postgame session with reporters on Thursday evening on Yoan Adon.
It just, uh, like I said, you know, it just walks, you know, the walks, uh, leadoff walks. Um, then he couldn't command the strike zone, you know, got behind hitters. Um, but, you know, he's got, you know, he's got great stuff. He's, we, we just got to continue to work with him uh, on, on his command and, uh, and utilizing all, all his pitches and getting him around the strike zone. Is that a tough thing to do up here? I know you wanted him to spend some time down there to work on things. Is it tough to make those adjustments so quickly when he's back up here again? Yeah, I mean, but, you know, but this is conversations we have even when he goes back down that we need to do this today. You know, he got from the windup, then um, he, his, his body was swaying, you know, one way and trying to throw the ball the other way. So we told him to go out there and just pitch from the stretch. Did much better. Um, so that's something that we can we can obviously look look at. Uh, I know Strasburg he always pitches from the stretch, so it's not we tell him it's not a horrible thing to do. Um, but you know that that's kind of the minimal in, uh, instructions that we can do. You know while he's while he's here, you know in the games. But um, you know we just got to get like I said when he, when he's in the strike zone and he's making pitches, uh, he's he's effective. You know and we can see that and just you know all of a sudden you know when he starts throwing the balls, you know non-competitive pitches. He gets his pitch out and gets up, and um, you know, next thing you know, you know, he's behind the count and he he gets hit. Yeah, look, I get that the Nats have very few legitimate major league starting pitching options. Uh, that is one of the biggest indictments of the organization, and that is one of the biggest reasons that the team is in the state that the team is in right now. But I don't like seeing a young pitcher get jerked between the majors and minors like Joanna Doan is getting jerked between the majors and minors. That's not good for a pitcher's development, especially a pitcher who clearly has a lot of work to do. Uh, The Nats' bullpen on Thursday was good. Four Nats relievers combined to allow one run in four innings. Andres Machado tossed a scoreless bottom of the fifth. Jordan Weems tossed a perfect bottom of the sixth and nearly had an immaculate inning, which is when you have a perfect inning with three strikeouts on nine pitches. Jordan Weems in his perfect bottom of the sixth on Thursday, three strikeouts on a total of 10 pitches. He nearly had an immaculate inning. Steve Ciszek, in the bottom of the seventh, uh, did allow a run. He gave up a two-out solo homer to Derek Hall to right field on a 1-2 pitch for a 5-2 Phillies lead. But Mason Thompson then tossed a perfect bottom of the eighth. So the Nats bullpen was good on Thursday. Uh, the Nats on Thursday afternoon as the corresponding roster move to recalling Joanna Doan from AAA Rochester placed reliever Reed Garrett on the 15-day injured list retroactive to July 6th with right biceps inflammation. Next up for the Nats, a three-game series at the Atlanta Braves. Game one, Friday night at 7.20. Eric Fetty will be the Nats starting pitcher. Game two, Saturday afternoon at 4.10. Patrick Corbin will be the Nats starting pitcher. And game three, Sunday afternoon at 1.35. Paolo Espino will be the Nats starting pitcher. Uh, We also had this with the Nats on Thursday. So Major League Baseball on Thursday announced the rosters for the 2022 All-Star Futures game which will take place at Dodger Stadium on Saturday, July 16th at 7 p.m. Eastern as a seven-inning American League versus National League game. Among those named to the National League team were two Nats prospects, uh, starting pitcher Cade Cavalli and second baseman Darren Baker. Darren Baker is the son of former Nats manager Dusty Baker, who as Houston Astros manager will manage the American League team in the 2022 All-Star Game at Dodger Stadium on Tuesday night, July 19th, right? The Astros won the American League pennant for the 2021 season. Now, it should be noted that neither Cavalli nor Baker is having a great season. Cavalli over 14 starts for AAA Rochester this season. ERA of 4 
54, a whip of 120, strikeouts per nine innings of 9.09. But Cavalli per MLB pipeline is the number 47 prospect in baseball. Uh, Darren Baker, on the other hand, seems to have been picked because of his last name. And I'm not necessarily angry about that, but I do think that this is worth highlighting. He's not like some well-regarded prospect for the Nats, and he's not even really having a good season. Uh, The Nats took Darren Baker in the 10th round of the 2021 MLB draft out of Cal, uh, but he entered Thursday with an OPS of just 675 this season for the high A Wilmington Blue Rocks over 241 plate appearances. Uh, Shortstop third baseman Gunnar Henderson of the Orioles was selected for the American League team in the 2022 All-Star Futures game. Uh, Henderson, by the way, is the number five prospect in baseball per MLB pipeline. The O's have five of the top 95 prospects in baseball per MLB pipeline. And as for what happened with the O's on Thursday night, we get to them right now. And what happened with the Orioles on Thursday night is they won their fifth consecutive game. The O's now have their longest regular season winning streak since a six-game winning streak in August 2020, a 4-1 win over the Los Angeles Angels at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on Thursday night in game one of a four-game series as the O's, Joe Angel, again, were in the win column. And the Orioles again in the win column. Yes, Joe, the win column. Hey, good to hear from Joe Angel after an Orioles win over the Angels. Uh, the O's now have won five consecutive games since a four-game losing streak. The O's in the 2022 regular season now are 40 and 44, including 26 and 20 since a 14 and 24 start. Yes, the O's are within. Four games of 500. A tremendous pitching and defense by the O's on Thursday night. Tremendous run prevention by the O's on Thursday night. They held the Angels to a mere one run. Uh, The O's held two of the best hitters in baseball. The Angels, Mike Trout and Shohei Otani to a combined 0 for 7 with a walk. Really impressive performance by Jordan Lyles. Uh, He was the Orioles' starting pitcher. He was good for a third time in four starts. Didn't necessarily have his best stuff, but the overall output ended up being quite good. Lyles on Thursday night, one run in six innings. Uh, He gave up five hits, two doubles, and three singles. He issued two walks and a wild pitch. He recorded four strikeouts. He threw 104 pitches, 61 strikes, versus 43 balls. Uh, Lyles was struggling for a while this season, but he's now on a nice run. 3 nothing loss to the Nationals at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on June 21st. Lyles in that game, two runs in six into third innings. This just two days after being a late scratch due to illness. A 4-3 loss at the Chicago White Sox on June 26th. Lyles in that game, four runs in seven innings, although he threw 111 pitches and he threw a lot of strikes, 75 strikes versus 36 balls. Uh, A 4-3 loss at the Minnesota Twins last Saturday afternoon. Lyles in that game, one run in six into third innings. He had seven strikeouts versus one walk. He gave up just four hits, a homer, a double, and two singles. He threw 100 pitches, 64 strikes versus 36 balls. And now we have what Lyles did on Thursday night. Uh, Jordan Lyles in the 2022 regular season, over 17 starts, 
has an ERA of 450. That's obviously not a sparkling ERA, but he lately has been good, and he lately has been a workhorse. Uh, O's manager, Brandon Hyde, you can tell that he is a big Jordan Lyles fan. Hyde constantly raves about Lyles. Here was Hyde during his postgame press conference on Thursday night on Lyles. No, he had good stuff, and, and you know, our pen was is thin and we've played a lot of close games lately and they had two extra inning games and so um if he felt like he could get another one then i was going to allow him to do it um having crable and perez available but um, jordan was awesome i mean he struggled early with command he was behind a lot of hitters early uh, continued to still put up zeros he got, he got better about in the fourth and the fifth inning and um you know, this wasn't his sharpest night, but amazing what you can do when you know how to pitch and make, make big pitches in big spots. Jordan, what was it, that breaking ball command, maybe the first couple of innings that helped him get through when the fastball command maybe wasn't there? Yeah, I don't, the, the sinker, you struggle in finding the sinker, it looked like to me. And, and you know, he. I think that, that's what experience really comes into play when you don't have, you're, you're searching a little bit, but you have something to go to to, to uh, get outs. And, and for me, that was a veteran performance just because of the, the lack of command with his fastball early and, and then finding it later in the game. Yeah, really good job by Jordan Lyles on Thursday night. Impressive job by the Orioles' bullpen on Thursday night. Three Orioles relievers combined for three scoreless innings with four strikeouts. Uh, Joey Crable, uh, he in the top of the seventh, faced three batters and got three outs. Uh, Now, one of the outs was an RBI sack fly by former national Kurt Suzuki, but still Crable lowered his ERA for the 2022 regular season to 240. CNL Perez, uh, he on Thursday night tossed a perfect top of the eighth with two strikeouts. And Perez in that top of the eighth faced the Angels numbers two through four batters, Mike Trout, Shohei Otani, and Taylor Ward. What a job by Perez. Uh, He now in the 2022 regular season has an ERA of 0.96. And then Jorge Lopez, a.k.a. Lopi. He tossed a scoreless top of the ninth for the save as Lopez pitched well for a second consecutive game off uh, his horrendous July 4th weekend. Remember, Jorge Lopez during the July 4th weekend gave up a home run in each of three appearances, but he now has been good in each of his last two appearances. Lopez's ERA for the 2022 regular season down to 179. Also on Thursday night, Adley Rutschman homered. Uh, He is the Orioles starting catcher and number six batter, one for four with a solo homer. Now he did commit a throwing error, but Rutschman in an Orioles one-run second, a one-out solo homer to right field for his first home run at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Here was Brandon Hyde during his postgame press conference on Thursday night on the Adley Rutschman homer. Yeah, huge hit, and uh, yeah, guys were pumped for him. I know that uh, um, it was a great swing, and and sure felt good to do it the first time in front of the home fans, first of many to come. Yeah, no doubt. Ryan Mountcastle on Thursday night, another extra base hit. Uh, Mountcastle as the Orioles starting first baseman and number four batter, one for two with an RBI double, a walk, and an RBI sack fly. Mountcastle in an Orioles one-run third, a two-out RBI double off the center field warning track 
Uh, Ryan Mountcastle is hitting like a madman right now in terms of racking up extra base hits. Mountcastle's slugging percentage for the 2022 regular season now is nearly 500. This guy was having a disappointing 2022 season. Not no more, he ain't. Uh, Ryan Mountcastle now in the 2022 regular season is slugging 498. He has been really good lately. And then there was Cedric Mullins. You know, Mullins, like Mountcastle, got off to a really bad start this season. And it's not like Mullins on Thursday night had some great offensive night. Mullins on Thursday night as the Orioles starting center fielder and number one batter, one for five with a single. He and the Orioles two-run fifth had a single. But the real story with Cedric Mullins on Thursday night his defense, multiple more impressive defensive plays. Mullins in the top of the fourth, a running and lunging catch in left center field of a leadoff first pitch lineout off the bat of Luis Renjifo. Mullins in the top of the eighth, a leaping catch on the warning track, really in right field, not even right center field, right field uh, on a deep flyout by Mike Trout for the first out. The amount of ground that Cedric Mullins continues to cover in outfields all across Major League Baseball cannot be overstated. Brandon Hyde, during his postgame press conference on Thursday night, on the defense of Cedric Mullins. I thought our outfield defense tonight, once again, was unbelievable. Um, Cedric's making a play or two a game, it seems like. Yeah, the defensive work of Cedric Mullins this season has been terrific. He entered Thursday with plus seven defensive runs saved in center field in the 2022 regular season. For the O's this weekend, we have the final three games of this four-game series against the Angels at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Game two, Friday night at 7.05, Tyler Wells will be the Orioles starting pitcher. Game three, Saturday afternoon at 4.05, Dean Kramer will be the Orioles starting pitcher. And game four, Sunday afternoon at 12.05, Austin Voth will be the Orioles starting pitcher. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Monday show, episode 353, will feature much more on the Commanders. I have some special guests to talk Commanders on the podcast in the coming weeks as we get set for the start of Commanders training camp on July 27th. Also on Monday show, we'll talk Nationals and Orioles. The Nats this weekend will play a three-game series at the Atlanta Braves. The O's this weekend will play the final three games of a four-game series against the Los Angeles Angels at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Have a great weekend, and I'll talk to you on Monday. Some of the things that we did in Carolina trying to emulate.